Wealth can be measured in many ways. As it grows, life can quickly become complex, creating the need for more focused planning. Welcome to We're Talking Money with OmniStar Financial Group. OmniStar has been helping clients achieve financial success for more than 20 years in a client-centric and stress-free environment. With a reputation built on a long track record of working with people who want to grow and protect their assets, OmniStar illuminates the blind spots and provides actionable strategies to help you achieve what's most important. This is where you can count on straightforward and unbiased advice from a team of professionals that are passionate about your success. Thanks for joining us again for another week of the We're Talking Money Expert Series. And we're going to continue investments for a third time. And then we'll be moving on to something else next week. But this is Alex Nolan again here with Phil Clark. And today we're going to talk about about five different topics, rules, call them what you will, about investing. Some of these are going to be common things you've heard. Some of them are going to be things you might not have known. And uh, hopefully a couple of these topics are going to be just kind of eye-opening for you. But we're going to try and keep today light and fun cover a couple interesting things. So the first item we are going to talk about today is just the power of compound interest. I and mean, that's kind of the reason why people start to invest in the first place, right? Someone said that compounding interest is one of the wonders of the world. And it, it truly is true. The fact that you can put something away and then it grows upon itself so that down the road, you've got more. And then 10 years after that point, it grows twice as quick as it did before. Pretty simple topic, but let's explain a little bit of how it works and some fun facts behind it. So compound interest, I got a question for you. Oh, yeah. Who said compound interest is one of the greatest wonders of the world? I'd say Warren Buffett, but I'm pretty sure I'm wrong. Yeah, so I, I think Warren Buffett believes in it. I think he definitely supports it, and he tells everyone to start young, to invest young. That's exactly what he did, and he's probably, you know, I guess he's known as the foremost authority when it comes to successful investing, and he's not, you know, I guess they call him the oracle for a reason. So <laughs> he's the, what do they say, the oracle of Omaha, right? Oh, yeah. Straight out of Nebraska. Yeah, so he's quite a success story, and it's pretty interesting to see what he's done and really compound interest was you know compound interest was a was a great component to investing that that has often been viewed as the biggest proponent to an investor's success so the younger you start obviously compound interest works hugely in your favor to your point Alex it you know if you get a reasonable rate of return let's say 7 or 8% then you're doubling your money about every 8 to 10 years and that's huge when you think about how many times or cycles you have to double if you start investing at, say, 25 years old, and you think about normal retirement, and you got a lot of doublings that can happen. So it's no wonder that wealth can be accumulated that way. But the real key is early start. You know, the longer you wait, the fewer years you have for compound interest to do its thing. But at any rate, Albert Einstein was your guy. That, pretty uh, close, right? Yeah, that's pretty close to Warren Buffett. You know, a About few years thing. difference. Yeah, but he called it the eighth wonder of the world, right? He said it was the eighth wonder of the world, and it's a big, big deal if used. But you know, we used to run these these things where we would show if a person invested at age twenty five to thirty five, just ten years, and then stopped, they'd have more money at age sixty five 
than a person who started at 35 and invested every year through age 65. And that's the effect of compound interest. So pretty remarkable stuff. Tell us how it works. Yeah. So I think the simplest way to think about it and why it's important is that when you think about how it's really working, and like you mentioned, if you start at 25, you retire at 65, you've got four cycles of doubling and you know, quick math says two, four, eight, 16. So that last double is pretty big. That last double is the total growth of the first three doubles because it's it's doubling. And you might not think about it that way, but if you write it down on paper and look what's really happening, those last 10 years are exactly as valuable as the first 30 for the total growth of your portfolio. And that's at a 7% rate of return is the rule of 72. You can look into that. But the point of this is, is that if you start younger, you add years to the back end of that growth cycle. We're going to all retire at some point. And the, the, you know, the converse side of that is every year you delay, you're not losing, you know, the small amount of savings that first year, second year, third year, what you're really doing is you're chopping off that compound growth on the back end. So year 37, 38, 39, 40 are going to be falling off. And if, if you ever look at a chart of how money grows over 40 years, do a time value of money calculation, just Google it. You'll see that a portfolio that, you know, if you would have started at 25 could have been $5 million at age 65 is going to look more like 3.7 because you missed those last four years. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty eye opening thing to look at that just, you know, starting four years or three years sooner could cost you 30%, 40% of your portfolio. Yeah, it's really remarkable when you look at it. You know, if you've accumulated, say, a million dollars and you've got one more cycle left and you leave that money alone in just another, you know, six or seven or eight years, now you have two million. And if you were at two million, then all of a sudden you have four. And if you were fortunate enough to be at, say, four million, all of a sudden you've got eight. So, that last cycle, if you've done a good job saving in the early years, boy, that last cycle or that last period, man, it really makes a big difference. But compound interest can also work against you. And I think this is the part where so many people get themselves in trouble. Compound interest is great on your investments, on your savings, if you will. So if you're building wealth, you want to start early, pay yourself first, let that money accumulate and be sure that you're getting compound interest. And not everything pays compound interest. A lot of things pay simple interest, and it's easy to get caught in the confusion. And so people that sell investments or that sell fixed rate products, they can tell you, oh, you're going to get 3% or 4% return. And that sounds great, but if it's not compound interest, then what you're really getting is the equivalent to a rate of return much lower than that. Yeah. So you have to be really, really careful. And I've seen people fall for that many times, particularly with fixed annuities. They will promise a certain rate and it turns out to be simple. It's not compound. A lot of annuities will pay compound, but not all of them. And so you have to be really, really careful there. That's a buyer beware kind of warning. But I think the, the most important thing to recognize is that compound interest, while it's tremendous on the growth side, it can be detrimental on the debt side. And so if you have a lot of debt and there's compounding interest, for example, revolving credit, mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why people never realize till it's too late that credit card debt can just, I mean, literally it can annihilate your ability to accumulate uh, wealth. So 
you got to be real careful with that because just as compound interest helps you accumulate wealth, it can be quite deleterious to the downside if you get too much debt that has compound interest. So be careful with that. Yeah. And a really good example of that is thinking about your credit cards. And if you're letting that, like you just mentioned, Phil, if you let that line stay outstanding, you leave a balance on those cards. You know, we used the example of a 7% rate of return, which is about a 10 year doubling window. A lot of credit cards could be as high as 25.99%, 21.99. At these rates, you could be compounding every three years your debt. So if oh, your yeah. debt yeah, is absolutely. doubling every three years, it doesn't matter how much you save. You're, you're going to have a very hard time getting a year over year 25% return on your investments. But I can tell you one thing for sure. If that credit card guarantees you a rate of 25%, they are going to bill you 25% interest on that debt. And that is a guarantee from the credit card company. So yeah, you want to pay that first. Bottom line is you'll never pay it off if you pay their basic if you pay their basic requirement. It's like 20 years for a couple thousand dollars sometimes for people. Yeah. It just it never ends. Yeah. And if you run the math on it, what you pay for whatever it is that you purchased, you pay 10, 20, 30 times the value of whatever it was that you purchased in some cases, not a really good way to spend money. And so uh, nope. just be careful with that. Compound interest, eighth wonder of the world, according to Albert Einstein. And I definitely support that. But buyer beware on the downside or on the debt side, be careful. It can bite you. That is the truth. So the next topic we're going to talk about probably won't spend quite as much time on because it's a little bit simpler, but it's it's the power of dividends. And, you know, when you think about stock and you know, in the modern tech era, dividends have, or at least in the news, they've gone out of style a little bit because good old-fashioned dividend stock aren't the flashy new companies that are coming out and inventing the new tech, the new cars, the new battery-powered objects, the new fintech, all, all these new cool things that we all want to talk about in the news. But dividends really are, are a powerful factor when you look at a stock. For one, they show the strength of a company. Being able to pay a dividend to your shareholders means that you had an, enough excess profit or you care enough about the people who own shares in your company that you're going to give them cash or you're going to give them shares, however you want to take that or receive that dividend, for holding on to the ownership of that company. So well, it, it's I a think, testament to the strength of that. Yeah, Alex, I think it goes, uh, there, there's two parts to that. One, I think it shows a great ethical part of the company. So it says that they want to do the right thing. The, the second is it tells you that they run that company very well. Mm -hmm. So they're profitable. They've got plenty of cash flow or free cash flow, and therefore they return some of that to the investor. So all of that tells you good things about that company, and it really helps you grow your wealth. So dividend growth is pretty, it's a staple in good wealth accumulation. But to your point, there's we've been in sort of a growth mode over the last couple of decades, really. And Dividend stocks don't get the attention I think that they deserve uh, because everyone wants the growth story. They want the, the high flyers. And the fact of the matter is when you have high flyers or when you have companies that don't pay a dividend, basically what that means is they're turning all the money back into the growth of the company or back into the, the building of the company. And a lot of times they have zero profit. 
So yes, there's a growth story because people believe in it, but the company might not make any money. And so to me, fundamentally, there's a big risk with that. Does it mean it's a bad investment? No, but does it mean that the stock is going to rally and, and, and really give you a big return? Probably, but does it also mean there's an intrinsic, there's a real problem fundamentally in that there's if there's no profit, then you have a fundamental problem and therefore a lot of risk potentially in that stock. Whereas dividend stocks tend to be, I like to think of them when, when you think about the, the tortoise and the hare, that's really the way I think about a dividend stock. It's, you know, it's more the tortoise. It baby steps, if you will, and slower than the, than the hare, but it gets the job done. And in a lot of ways, if you look over history, it's done it much more consistently than the growth stocks. Yeah. One of the uh, interesting facts on dividend stock is that over the past 90 years, dividend stock have performed close to twice as well as non-dividend stock. And, and a lot of that comes to just stability. A lot can happen over 30 years or 40 years of a company. And when you think about a company that has the capacity to pay a dividend, usually they're stable, they're able, you know, they're profitable, like you mentioned, and they just don't have their inherent risks. You know, a lot of these tech companies we're seeing right now they're not profitable. They're nowhere near profitable, but there's a lot of upside potential. And the problem is, is if you know they ever fall out of sentiment or that upside potential looks like it's going to start to dwindle, the share price can just plummet. Where if a company is profitable, there's kind of a floor there fundamentally that you know when you see a company, that at least they're turning a profit, even if we don't really like them, they're still profitable. So they, they tend to have a little bit more stability in, in their character. Yeah. And, and so then if we go back to your first point about, or which was compound interest, now you add one more thing that, that helps you build wealth here. So the dividends, well, compound interest works with the dividend. So every time that dividend is paid, if it's reinvested, you buy more shares, you get more of the security or the holdings of that company. And, and then you've got compound interest on that. So now all of a sudden you've got compound interest, and now you've got dividends that are going to create compound interest. And if it happens to be in a tax-deferred environment, then you have one more thing working to your advantage. So these, all of these elements can really make the difference or mean the difference between becoming wealthy and becoming very wealthy. So very interesting stuff to think about. Often, I don't think it's talked about enough. So glad you brought up the point of dividends. Good. That's a good thing. And you're right. Over the last almost 100 years, man, they've performed pretty darn well compared to a growth story. They definitely hold up. The next point we're going to talk about is something that, in my experience of being in this industry, is not very clear. I don't think a lot of people know about it, but it's something that relates to or impacts almost every single investor just because of where most of us invest. It's the story of average versus actual rates of return. This really is going to speak to is the person who invests in mutual funds and the person that invests in any really bundled product, or they just look at an index. It's specifically, when you're talking about a mutual fund, they're often sold or you know people often buy them wherever you're going to go get your information on a mutual fund. You're going to look at something and be like, wow, that's got a really great 10-year rate of return. Or wow, that's got a great five-year rate of return. I want that. You know, Obviously, they're all going to say everywhere, past returns are not indicative of future performance. But aside from that, I feel like a lot of us don't really pay attention to that. And we're like, ooh, shiny, I want that. But something that's really important to know is that average return is what they are showing on that mutual fund. And that really doesn't tell the whole story because an average return 
is pretty irrelevant when it comes to the stock market because the stock market doesn't get 7% every single year, year over year, without fail. If it did, that would be the whole story. The stock market gets 30% one year, down 20% another year, up five, down two, zero, up 30, down 30. It's all over the place. So when you look at what an average return is, it tends to actually be higher than what your actual return is if it was a straight line rate of return. A real simple example of this that you know I learned when I was young in the industry that kind of blew me away, but it's extremely simple, is a, the scenario of if you got a 50% downturn versus a 100% upswing in your portfolio. So let's say you have $100,000 this year and you gain or you get a 100% rate of return next year. And then the following year, you get a 50% downturn. So after the 100% increase in your portfolio, you now have $200,000 in your account. But the following year, you lose 50%. Half, it's only half down, but you're back to the $100,000 you started with. Let's repeat that one more time. You're back to 200,000 and then you lose 50% the following year after that and you're back to 100,000 again. If you do the average rate of return, you would have an average rate of return of 25%. You're up 100 twice and down 50 twice. You can do the math yourself. You get a positive return of 25% on average, but your actual return is zero. Your portfolio is exactly where it started four years before. So this is something that's really important to know is that if your portfolio you're investing in has a lot of volatility, that real straight line return that you have is actually going to be noticeably less than the average return of that investment. When you've got a very non-volatile investment, you know, some conservative bond funds, cash, that gap is going to be very, very small because they don't have a lot of volatility. But when you have those large fluctuations, it, it tends to show up. And right now, you know, even in the coronavirus pandemic that we're going through, looking at how portfolios trend, I just saw a news article that, you know, on on average, the market was down about 30, mid 30%, depending on what index you looked at. But to recover, some of these indexes gained 50, 55, 60% to recover from the pre-coronavirus dip that we had in March. So if you look at the average rate of return on that, they're going to actually have a positive percentage rate of return, even though they're just getting back to zero and there's actually a, an actual return of zero. So it's, it's something that's not often spoken about especially with how mutual fund companies market. They want to market a 12% rate of return. They want to market a 10% rate of return, but you might only be getting seven, eight, eight and a half percent. Usually it's not a super drastic difference like the example, but it's something to be something to pay attention to when you're looking at different investment products and how you're picking what you want, because less volatility can mean a more predictable actual return for you. I think if we try to sum up everything that you just said, because man, that was a mouthful, but <laughs> if, you, if you sum up everything, bottom line is investing requires a long-term horizon. You know, it, it it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. And actual versus average, 100% real story, that's important. But if you're in the market over time, then all of a sudden the average is begin to make sense and they begin to be the thing that you want to pay attention to. But in the short run, you can be in a fund that says, oh, our average is this. And you can feel like, where in the world did that average go over a year or two or three? When you're looking at it from that angle, you can be disappointed pretty quickly. And so the point is, averages come over long periods in the market. Yep. 
And you've got to know that investing is not a short-term thing. Fixed income, fixed investments, or fixed rate type instruments, those are the things that are designed for short-term. And if you're going for something that's more than, say, an average or more than a bond yield type return, then you've got to think about longer term or longer periods of investing. So good good thoughts there, average versus actual, and you're right, it probably didn't get talked about enough. So looks like number four here is trying to beat the market. Boy, that's, that's an interesting subject and one that gets debated, I'd say, every second somewhere around All the globe. All the time. Yeah. For sure. We're all trying to beat the market. It's a fun topic to talk about because when people say you can't beat the market, well, that depends. It's really easy to beat the market and get lucky for a day or two. What I think most people and what we've got to frame this conversation around is can you beat the market over a 20-year, 30-year, 40-year time period like we spoke about earlier when you're planning for your retirement and you're doing systematic savings. At that point, it becomes a lot harder to beat the market because there's just so much time for volatility to take place or something poor to happen in one of your investments or something to just skew or your personal biases to skew how you're investing. There's a lot of studies around trying to beat the market and the different ways you know to track stock or track indices, track technicals that are, you know a short tail sign to beat the market. But at the end of the day, we find it's pretty tough. And, you know, Phil, if you want to dive into a little bit about how we here, you know, we analyze the market to, you know, invest in a portfolio. And I would definitely say we don't strive to beat the market as our number one objective. You know, we have, we have an investment goal that we're trying to meet and having a sound investment goal makes it much easier to build a portfolio that will perform like the market, perform well, perform toward the objective of that portfolio versus trying to just win 20% returns year over year over year, which can be pretty difficult to do. Yeah, it's more than difficult to do. Most most managers are never going to get there. And that's been proven through decades, through through the centuries, really. But I think our priority is not to to just beat the market. Our priority is to deliver better than average rate of return and then adjust for risk. And so, yes, we want to beat the market, but we want to beat it on a risk-adjusted basis. In other words, we want to take less risk but give you similar performance. And in our opinion, looking at it from that perspective makes a lot more sense. The less risk you take and if performance is commensurate with, say, that the average or the general market, then that's a big win. The lower the risk, the better, as long as performance is not taking too much of a haircut. So that's number one. Number two is every family, every investor is different. And so they all have, all of our clients have a family index number that we pay close attention to. And not everybody needs a 12% return. They might want it, but not everybody needs that. So to accomplish their goals and objectives, it's incumbent on us to understand what they need to produce in rate of return to get where they're trying to go and to get there at the right time. So that is just as important to us as it is, you know, say compared to trying to beat the market. In fact, I think it's more important. Some clients, they don't have the capacity for the risk necessary to get the higher returns. But if they don't need them, 
then there'd be no reason to take that excessive risk. And so it's a balance. Alec got a risk adjust, if you will. So gain perform or, or deliver performance in a risk adjusted environment, and then make sure that the way we're handling investments for our clients meets the objective of their index number. So in our opinion, we say a lot of times to heck with the S&P 500 and all those things. What we're looking at is the client's index number. What do they need to achieve? And can we deliver that? That is really what investing is all about for the client. It's how do we achieve their goals? And do we do we have a plan of action to help them get where they want to go and to arrive at the right time? Those are some great points. And you know, I think we're all in agreement over here, at least, that if you want to try and beat the market, it's a great thing to do on the side if you want to gamble a little bit. But for your portfolio, for your retirement, don't try and do it. Get the help of a professional, get the help of a fiduciary, and and find out what you need personally to successfully retire, not what your buddy John down the street's trying to do trading midnight in foreign markets. So, Well, listen, <laughs> there, there's no doubt, Alex, you make a great point. There's no doubt you can beat the market. Yep. The question is, do you want to take the risk necessary? Are you going to put in the time to do it? But if you're going to, then our opinion has always been, let's make sure that we're prudent with the dollars necessary to get you where you're trying to go. And then whatever the excess dollars are, then you can do anything you want with that. And if you want to go for broke or, or go for beating the market, use the money that is not going to affect your long-range plans. So in other words, whatever the discretionary dollars are or the excess dollars, that becomes your capacity and therefore you can take any risk you want with it. So just be sure that you know the difference between the two and that's really where good planning comes into play. Great point. So the last thing we're going to talk about real quick is knowing your fees. So this is something that you know, just as someone working in the industry, you know, we're aware of here just because we look at so many people's different portfolios at different custodians. We look at different accounts. We look at different investment options. But for those of you who are listening, you might not be aware of this, but typically there's quite a few different layers of fees involved in our industry and transparency is not always the greatest. So hopefully we can clear up some of the different types of fees, just something to be aware of as, as you go through your investing life, looking at different options available to you. So the first most common type of fee that you've probably, you're probably aware of if you've been investing for a long period of time, you're definitely going to know about this, but trading fees. So trading fees are fees when you trade stocks, you trade mutual funds with a broker dealer or another investment custodian. And what's interesting is that a lot of the larger broker dealers actually now are reducing fees. I know ours has taken fees, uh, a lot of trading fees out. There might still be some for, you know, options, contracts and other things, but for traditional stocks, Trading fees are kind of going by the wayside, and this is this is a new thing as fee compression starts to happen, but not necessarily a bad thing. So that fee is kind of going away. Where the uh, it's oh. a good thing. And real quick, yep. uh, Alex, let me just make a let me make a differentiation here. Broker dealers are not necessarily free on that because they still pay their representatives a commission. Custodians, on the other hand, they've wiped away the trade cost. Broker dealers can still apply a commission on top of that, and it's how they pay their brokers. So buyer beware, and this is where lingo in our industry and our profession really gets nebulous in a lot of ways. And if you don't mm -hmm. know the difference, you think you're getting one thing and you're really getting another 
which is one of the reasons we love acting as a fiduciary and serving on the side of of a fee-based firm because disclosure for us is normal. It's just part of our world and we're going to tell our clients everything that goes on within the relationship. And so there's no, there's never a trying to figure it out, if you will, from the client's side of the table. We're all on the same side of the table and it just keeps keeps everybody in a situation or relationship where trust can be built. So trading costs, you're right, they've basically gone away, but that doesn't mean that commissions on that trade have been eliminated. Certainly in our space, in the fee-based business, we don't charge any commissions, and so we charge a fee to manage. Different different animals, certainly no trade cost. But your, your second point here is separate management uh, or SMAs, so separately managed accounts. That's an interesting one, and again, somewhat nebulous. So you can go to an advisor or a broker-dealer and have access to these SMAs, and these SMAs are going to charge a fee to let you use their platform. The advisor or the broker is going to charge a fee, and there could be a broker-dealer platform fee on top of that. This is where the layering starts to come into play. So all of a sudden, you've got the separate, separately managed accounts. They might be charging 10, 20, 30 basis points. And then you've got an advisor who believes they need to get 80 to 100 basis points. And then if the broker-dealer charges something, you, you could easily have 15 to 2% fees, yet what you think you're paying is only the advisor's fee. And don't forget that inside of all that fee layering, what is your portfolio made up of? If it's made up of mutual funds, those likely also have a fee of anywhere from 0.25, usually they're lower cost in this kind of a structure, but I've seen plenty of them where they're over half a percent, almost 1% in this kind of a structure. So if your advisor's charging 1%, there's a firm fee plus an SMA fee, call it another half a percent, and then potentially up to another percent in fund fees, you could be at two and a half percent all in, but your advisor is only charging you one percent. Yeah, so a lot it's of confusion. To know that. Is it, there's a lot of confusion there. You know, when an advisor says, "Hey, I'm only going to charge you 0.75 or one percent or one point two. Again, buyer beware. There might be a lot more fees going on, and they may not be obligated to tell you about those fees. So very important. And then the fund fees that you just mentioned, Alex, so you don't have to be in separately managed accounts for that to be occur for that to occur. Fund expense ratios are happening. If there is a mutual fund involved, you can bet there is a there's an expense ratio attached to it. The exception here where that wouldn't affect you or certainly wouldn't affect you as much would be on institutional shares or shares that that are designed to not have those fees. So that that exists, but generally, particularly for smaller amounts of money, you're not going to be in those kinds of those kinds of funds unless you're in a qualified plan like a 401k, maybe. But even then there's going to be expense ratios across the board. And then lastly is advisory fees. And we just talked about that, but that's that's one more fee. So we've got one, two, three, four sets of fees here, potentially. And these these fees are layered and as you said, Alex, gosh, I've seen I've seen clients paying two and a half, three percent in some cases for this kind of stuff. And when we talk to clients, when we charge them, you know, for smaller accounts, we might be at one and a half or two percent, and they think, wow, that's really expensive. Well, the difference is when we're charging those kinds of fees, that's everything. 
There's no layering. It's our fee and everything else. We're taking care of that unless there are some ETFs or something in there. There could be a a really small uh, expense ratio in there, but very, very small compared to all these other things that we're talking about. So we certainly can't describe all of it via this podcast, but I can sure tell you that when it comes down to selecting an advisor, you need to be asking questions about fees and how they're layered, what are all of the fees, and you want full disclosure. And if you ask for that, they have to give it to you. But in some situations, depending on where you are, broker-dealer versus fee advisory firms or fee-based firms, they may or may not have to disclose all of that or may not be required to. So you have to really, really know what to ask. Those are some great points. And you know, I think that's about all we had for today was just going over these different topics. Next week, we're going to, or won't be next week, but our next episode will be with David Anderson, an estate planning attorney that we like. And he's a good guy. And we'll be having him to talk through some of the basic estate planning documents that are valuable to have when you start looking into preparing your estate. That'll be a great show. Keep in mind, everybody, investing is not short-term. Investing is not simple. It's complicated, without a doubt. But there's many benefits to it, including compound interest, which we started the show with that subject. And so don't underestimate it, but also know what you're doing. Work with a good advisor, someone that you know, like, and trust. Ask the right questions. We know it's going to make a difference. Thanks for joining us on We're Talking Money. Be sure to visit our website, www.omnistarfinancial.com, where you can learn more about how we provide value to our clients. Subscribe to the show and our newsletters, and drop us a line with suggestions for upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. 